Today, we're pleased to bring you a great name in American journalism, that of Richard C. Hodlett. Two weeks ago, we closed the program with a famous report made by Mr. Hotlet, broadcast to America via shortwave radio on D-Day. Richard Hotlet was at that time 26 years of age, working for CBS Radio after being hired by Edward R. Murrow. Murrow's team is as well-regarded as is he, which is to say it is legendary. Mr. Hotlet was a key member of that team. It turned out that his report was the only one from CBS Radio to be broadcast nationwide on D-Day. Richard Hotlet was the first CBS reporter to cross into Germany with advancing troops and the first to report on the Battle of the Bulge. While covering an airborne assault across the Rhine, his B-17 was damaged, requiring him to bail out after the pilot fought to get the plane back over Allied-controlled territory. Richard C. Hotlet covered the event when American troops linked up with units of the Red Army. He later bent the rules to get into Berlin right after its liberation by Soviet troops, though he could not later admit that for fear of being sent home as punishment. Richard Hotlet went on to a distinguished career at CBS Radio and Television, which included stints as Moscow and Bonn correspondents, as well as hosting a morning news show. He's worked for the Council on Foreign Relations and as a spokesman for the U.S. Ambassador to the U.N. In 1993, at age 76, he began a weekly interview program for National Public Radio, America and the World. Richard C. Hotlet is still very active today, contributing regularly to the Christian Science Monitor, and we're delighted to add, today at least, this program. Thank you for joining us, Mr. Hotlet. Sure. With the anniversary of D-Day this month, you took part in a commemoration at George Washington University. Um, How was that? It was very interesting because... um we dealt not only with D-Day as, a, as an event and as a, um, as a uh, journalistic assignment, but also as a, as a sort of a, a marker in, in American history. It was the United States appeared on D-Day in 1944 for the first time as the superpower. Mm-hmm. And um, that, that was it. From there on, it was, you know, more responsibility, more leadership, more problems, more, more trouble. But um, onward and upward, the post-war period was extremely successful, and it was well thought out and uh, well consummated. You, um, you described looking down from the air at an English channel filled with the greatest invasion fleet in history, 5,000 ships of all sizes bearing down on the Normandy coast. What about that most remarkable of days sticks in your mind? The fact that from the, from the beginning it was, it was quite clear to me flying over this this immense fleet and then um, uh, doing the bombing run on the Utah beach uh, a few minutes later that, that there was no German air force uh, presence in the in that operation the Luftwaffe was was not there and the combination of this enormous force which had to fight its way ashore in Omaha in a bloody fashion and uh, there was plenty of fighting too in the three British and Canadian beaches. For us on Utah, it was a, it was a milk run. Yeah. But um, the fact that we had this force, that it was landing, that there was no German air opposition, made me sure that it would be successful. I never had any doubts that we, we'd prevail in the end, but that this operation would succeed, that it would not be thrown back with all the, you know, the delay and, sure. and loss and, and trouble that it would have caused that was clear to me as, a, as an individual human being at the time. Well, you went to work for United Press in Berlin in 1938. You were 21, with no thought, evidently, of becoming a journalist prior to that. Can you, can you tell our audience how a kid from Brooklyn wound up as a foreign correspondent in Nazi Germany? Well, it was the way many foreign correspondents have wound up. It was a matter of luck of being 
at a certain interesting place at an at an interesting time with with people needing needing help and I was in Berlin I was studying at the university or I thought I'd be studying at the university but there was no studying really to be done at a university under Nazi auspices I was a philosophy major in college and I I signed up for a a, uh, a lecture on on Immanuel Kant at uh, eight o'clock in the morning turned up in this large lecture hall at the university a fine old sort of 18th century building and in walks a man in a brown uniform and a and a red band with a black swastika and said opens the lecture on on Kant with Heil Hitler <laughs> and I could imagine old Immanuel spinning in his grave well it was quite quite clear that uh, the, the ideologically they had taken over so I hung around and tried a few other things uh, which were also unsatisfactory and wondering then what to do in Berlin, I talked to someone, I asked someone or, or someone suggested that I get in touch with the United Press. UP had a, a bureau there, a founder of fine journalist, a man named Fred Erksner. And um, I went up to them and, uh, and they said, well, we don't need anybody at the moment. This was sort of the end of 37, very beginning of 38. They didn't need anybody but to, to keep in touch. And if I had any and he ran into any stories at the university or elsewhere to give him a call. And I remember calling him at one point to say that uh, I'd been to a concert at the Philharmonic Hall the previous night and found that the, the statue of, of uh, Mendelssohn had been removed, which uh, <laughs> may be my first, my first news story. Wow. Uh, but then, uh, no, I just kept in touch with him, and there was nothing much doing uh, until... The, January of um, 38, I think it was the 30th of January, maybe it was a little later, I think he postponed his talk. Hitler spoke to the, to the Reichstag and announced the, the complete transformation of the, of the high command of the armed forces with him taking charge, really, and his people being put in. And at that point, it became clear that he was clearing the decks for, for action. UP asked me to come along. By that time, that time I spoke reasonably decent German and uh, to help them cover Hitler's speeches. Of course, the next operation really was the, the invasion of, uh, and the occupation of Austria. And the, my second sort of outside assignment was to go down to Tempelhof Airport in, in the heart of Berlin in uh, March, whenever it was March, the, uh, the latter half of March, to uh, be there when Hitler returned to Berlin. And it was, you know, by comparison with everything that followed, everything was so monumental and, and sort of mass-produced after sure. that, he he got off his little plane, it was a three-engined uh, plane, and, and uh, just stood there with a small group. Goebbels was there with a small impromptu sort of speech of welcome. And there I was, about an arm's length away from him. Wow. And, uh, and wondering, you know, he, I'd heard all this business about his magnetic blue eyes. Well, I looked into those blue eyes, nothing magnetic about him. From then on, I, I, I was hired at the UP's princely salary and uh, stayed there with the UP until, um, until uh, later, until 1941. Well, I'd say talking to you and Bob Edwards about this, I really have to, uh, to read The Rise and Fall of the Third Reich. I've got Shira's book off the shelf. I, I need to do it. Well, as you say, you spoke uh, decent German and were famous from early on for not being intimidated by the Nazis while asking some pointed questions. Uh, this led to your being arrested by the Gestapo in March of 1941. I do want to recommend to anyone listening that uh, they go onto the web and locate the account that you wrote 
of your imprisonment and interrogation, because it'll become clear from your writing why Edward Murrow wanted to hire you. Can you tell us a bit about being in a Nazi prison? Well, it was, it was um, you know, the, the traditional uh, knock at the, on the door at 2.30 in the morning and two characters come in. I've forgotten what they were wearing, maybe black trench coats, black wrinkles. But, uh, you know, the secret police and come with us. And so I went with them, and I went to the to the main old lockup jail in 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 Berlin at the time. It was called the Alexanderplatz, and it was on the Alexanderplatz. It was later demolished by the by the communist government that took over in East Berlin. But there it was, and I was sort of f- fingerprinted and on and on. No 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 drama, no uh, no mistreatment at all. wasn't beat up, wasn't wasn't tortured, or whatever. And so put in a cell and uh, stayed there for, I don't know, a number of weeks. And uh, the, the questioning was all slightly ridiculous. They, they were just fishing for information. What later you know, seemed to be the, the cause of it all was, hey, I was, I was, they didn't like me as I didn't like them. But a man had been, a man named Gunnar Sapp, who had been, uh, he was a so-called correspondent for a, a second German news agency that had been established after the outbreak of the war, had been caught in, in, in New York by the, the Attorney General Bob Jackson, apparently with his uh, hand in the cookie jar. And with him being arrested, I think they looked around, the UP counted as the sort of the second uh, American uh, news agency, second to, to Associated Press, and uh, so it was uh, sort of symmetrical that to, to, it seems, in retrospect, that they would have picked me, uh, A, as out of the UP, and B, because I particularly disliked me as I did them. Right. So and I think the, from the beginning, was, they must have had in mind was an exchange yeah. sooner or later. And that, that is, in fact, what happened in July of 1941 in, in Lisbon, when uh, Tsop and uh, the various others... Uh, Germans who had been picked up in in Washington and elsewhere were sent home, and I and some of the the consul, American consular and diplomatic people who had been overrun in the, in the Low Countries and in and in Scandinavia, Denmark and uh, Norway, uh, also were sent home. It was a big exchange, and I was just one little piece of it. Now, when you say hand in the cookie jar, were these was this individual actually involved in espionage? He or was some... accused of being yes. With with good cause, I, I presume. I presume so. I mean, Bob Jackson was a, a you know a, a reasonable, responsible human being. Later, the prosecutor at Nuremberg. That's right, and later Supreme Court justice. We are speaking with former CBS and NPR reporter, commentator, and news anchor Richard C. Hodlett. The story that I found uh, rather amazing reading about uh, about uh, Murrow's team was that as Allied forces were closing in on Paris, your colleague, Charles Collingwood, wrote up an account of the liberation of that city before it actually happened. Oh, yes. An account that everyone's horror was mistakenly broadcast as if it had happened. Now, Well, that was, that was entirely my fault. Really? Uh, oh, yeah. We got one of these press bags back from, um, from the, uh, the, the beachhead uh, with uh, Charlie's piece in it and uh, the script. Uh, actually, I've forgotten whether it was a... He, he had some kind of a recorder, probably a wire recorder, but the script was there, and the script was censored, as they had to be. All you know, all scripts sent sent uh, out of London or sent sent from the field were were subject to military, tactical military censorship. And um, 
I read this. I read Charlie's piece, and it was a pure you know, sort of mood piece. He was there with American troops waiting to go into to, uh, to Paris, and down at the bottom of this long report was this was the line which I will never forget. We went into Paris with the so and so and such and such outfit. I've forgotten what it was. You know, the 16th Infantry, the First Division, or whatever it might have been. And I said to myself, "Aha, Charlie has outwitted the censor." He's at the bottom of this long and, you know, not terribly exciting piece. It was a, a sort of hometown piece. He had this that there in Paris. So I got on the air and said, well, you know, here, here is this. And the, the script was censored, so there it was. And uh, Charlie Collingwood has been is in Paris with American troops. And, of course, it wasn't true at all. It was very soon denied, and I remember at a... At a Press, big press conference at the Ministry of Information in, in London. You know they brought this up as a big, and I had to stand up with a with a big red face and say, "Look, you know, blame me. Is no blame nobody else. I I did it, and I did it in in good faith, thinking that uh, that Charlie had outwitted the censor. Well, he hadn't, uh, and that was it. A, a great deal to do, an enormous to do. Charlie said he kept for for weeks he kept waking up at night screaming. <laughs> <laughs> well, I gather that uh, that Murrow stand, stood behind Collingwood, and 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 uh, and you managed to all to uh, save him uh, for the distinguished career he wound up having later. Oh yeah, sure, sure. No, it didn't didn't damage him at all, <laughs> nor nor me because I, after all I admitted it. It was it was in that in that sort of uproar and and the, the turbulence of you know, after the invasion. Um, People were prepared to admit that, uh, or prepared to accept that it was. It was. I'd, I mean, I didn't say. I didn't say to, to the to the to the press conference what I've just told you that I that I thought Charlie had outwitted the censor. <laughs> I just said it was my uh, mischance and my my mistake and so forth. You know, uh, we should also mention uh, that uh, that you actually were a cause celeb when you were actually taken into custody by the Gestapo. That was well known back in the United States. Well, yeah, yeah. Edward Murrow's dramatic report from Buchenwald came on the same day as the death of Franklin Roosevelt. Uh, um, it seems like a report that otherwise would have had much more impact was thereby diminished. Well, that, that's what happens, you know. You get a big, get a big event just as, as, uh, as D-Day sort of this year fell under the, the shadow of the passing of uh, Ronald Reagan. Yeah. That uh, big news, big new news stories and events supersede and, and over, overtake um, earlier ones. So, obviously, um, the but I, I must say, the, uh, Murrow's piece on Buchenwald remains alive and, uh, and is, was, was some of his best work. We should uh, also plug World War II on the Air, uh, a book now recently out that contains an actual CD where you can hear some of your reporting and, and that report oh, really? uh, particularly. Huh. Quite, quite wonderful. It has 50, uh, on the CD, 50 actual broadcasts from uh, World War II. Hmm. I highly recommend that. Yeah. N- another book I, I think very highly of, the award-winning book by Stanley Cloud and Lynn Olson, The Murrow Boys. Yes, they did they're, a very good job. Yes, yeah. there's a photo in that of you at Buchenwald interviewing a prisoner. There's not much in the text about your actually being there, but obviously you were. Can you tell us yeah, about the liberation of the death camps? that was days later. Okay. Days later. There were still some poor you know, characters floating around. But Murrow came upon the scene, you know, the dead people lying there like a cord of wood and, yeah. and starvation and, uh, 
uh, that was that was fresh. I mean, that was just sort of peeling peeling open the the uh, the, the shell of the horror. Uh, by the time I got there, it had been rather clear cleaned up, and there were just a few odd remnants around kids and people who didn't know what to do, where to go. Well. The battle over at uh, CBS, over money-making versus quality reporting, has been documented in many books, uh, most recently in Bob Edwards's Edward R. Murrow and the Birth of Broadcast Journalism. Um, I sort of have two questions related to that. The parting of ways between Murrow and William L. Shire uh, is, is well known, seems to have come about at least in part over issues of censorship and control of content by a sponsor. Well, that's what, what uh, Shire uh, said. Murrow completely dismissed that. There was a lunch for the um, association of a small group in, in New York, Association of Radio and Television News Analysts. And um, uh, I went to the lunch, lunch with, with Murrow, and Murrow had a sort of a speech ready for, you know, for old time's sake of the rest. And uh, Bill Shiver got up and said that, you know, he had, he had been sort of booted off, off the air because of his liberal views, and, uh, and, uh, and, and Murrow, Murrow got... Got his dander up, and Shire at one point sort of mentioned that he had won the, the Peabody Award, and and, um, and Murrow, as I say, his dander up, got up and said, "Now look, you know, he was at that point vice president of, for news, so you can imagine that he wouldn't have sat still for some sponsor dismissing Shire because he didn't like what Shire was saying." But he also said, "You know, I, I did my best work," said said Murrow. Uh, long before I got, uh, to, and he had won several Peabody awards, uh, but it, it was an unpleasant, it was an unpleasant uh, little little altercation, because Murrow had hired Shire. It was his first, it was the first man he did hire, in 1938, at the time of the um, of the uh, invasion of uh, of Austria, and uh, they were, I mean, they were good friends. This was something Murrow couldn't take and. Uh, it ended there. Well, in, in Cloud and Olson's book, they, they do uh, point out that, yes, Shire may have been liberal, but so were Eric Severide and Howard K. Smith, and, and they, they remained on uh, with CBS. And so was Murrow. Sure. As an aside, uh, the, the book, I think, is very, uh, many of these books, uh, talk about you and Howard K. Smith working side-by-side side in, in Berlin at the, for UP and, and yeah. yet having very different views of the world, both agreeing that the, the Nazis had to go, but often seeing not eye-to-eye. That's right. Yeah, yep, we had our differences. Um, he, <laughs> I don't forgotten really what they were. Maybe it was you know just two young fellows of the same age, sure. uh, working together and competing with one another. A lot of testosterone. Uh, yeah, sure. Um, but I, he, he, uh, I think he was rather he was rather more understanding of the of the Soviet. Not not that he was in any way. I mean. Uh, uh, communist or pro-communist that sort of thing but he uh, he took a rather more sort of um, how to say it uh, a uh, an understanding view of what was happening in the soviet union and i was i had been disabused of what you know what of, of communism in my college days um, watching them manipulate uh, crowds and and organize organize uh, demonstrations and stuff and sucking in the, the innocent uh, freshmen and sophomores at Brooklyn College, and so um, I, I was I was you know anti-communist. Sure. It didn't play didn't play off very well with each other, but it was, he was a good man, and we you know we we remained on very good terms for the rest of his life. Sure. 
Did he come around your way of thinking in the wake of, uh, of the Cold War? I wouldn't be surprised because at one point I, I was in some I was doing something in, in Los Angeles and I was listening to his Sunday morning broadcast. I had never had any heartburn about about Vietnam. I thought uh, that, that it was it was warranted. It was and at the end of the day it, it failed because it was it was poorly conceived. But Vietnam was a was helping the South Vietnamese against the North Vietnamese invasion. There was no other way of putting it. And uh, there was Howard Smith saying roughly the same thing. And it was his, his farewell to all his sort of liberal and left-wing audience. Yeah. And he got, he got tons of, of letters afterwards accusing him of you know, backtracking and, uh, and the rest. So obviously, I mean, he may, he may have had his, his doubts about the Russians long, long before that. To the extent that he that he showed, as I say, understanding of the Russians when we were in Berlin, it didn't mean in any way that he was ideologically disposed in that direction. Sure. We must take a short break to do some station business, but we will return in our third segment to speak more with Richard C. Hodlett. This is Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett, and you're listening to KDVS 90.3 FM, Davis, Sacramento.